Father, thank you for reminding us of how deep your love is for us, for reminding us that you've demonstrated your love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you that even in our ungodliness and unrighteousness, you paid the price, Lord Jesus, for our redemption. Thank you that you have justified us by your grace as a gift. We love you. We thank you that you have first loved us. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you've promised to be with us, near us, and for us. We are grateful this morning for all of your precious and very great promises. We ask you now to help us fix our eyes on things above. Help us to fix our eyes on things above where Christ is, seated at your right hand. Help us to Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at Your right hand. Help us to look to Him, to consider Him, so that we might not grow weary or lose heart. Oh God, give us today's grace. Give us today's mercy. That we might follow You. That we might surrender all to You. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Teach us today to lay down our all. Open your word to us, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. Church family, so good to see you this morning. Happy Palm Sunday. This coming week is known by Christians all around the world as Holy Week week we remember the final days of Jesus before His crucifixion and resurrection. I want to invite you as well to our Good Friday service this Friday, 6 o'clock, uh, right here. Uh, I want to encourage you to get here just a little bit early. Like this is not one of those times to sort of just be rushing in at 6.05. We intend to sit and meditate on and look hard at the, the, the hard truths of the cross and the death of Jesus so come at 5.45 if you're able and just sit for a while and meditate and prepare your heart to see and stare with us. Of course, if 6.05 is the only time you can get here, that's totally fine. Come on in whenever you can. But if you're able, get here early and prepare your heart. Well, this morning, in order to prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper, I want to turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 Verses 21 through 31. And this will be our second sermon on this majestic passage. Last week we looked at verses 21 through 24 mainly. And this week we're going to look at verses 25 through the end. Follow along as I read God's Word. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of our gracious God. May He write its truth on our souls. Well, as I mentioned last week, this passage has been called the greatest paragraph ever written. It contains the central truth of the gospel in just a few short sentences. And last week, we focused on how this passage provides the solution to our problem of unrighteousness. We are unrighteous, but now God has provided the means of being right in His sight. Paul has just spent the first three chapters of the book of Romans driving home the point that all people are unrighteous before God. From chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20, the point has been that every human, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of social status, has forsaken God and has trampled on His glory. And thus, every person, Paul says, is under God's condemnation and deserves His righteous wrath. Wrath is what we all have earned. Every single one of us. In fact, turn back over to Romans 1.18 and let's just remind ourselves before we move into verse 25 of chapter 3, let's just remind ourselves of the description of our depravity that Paul has been hammering on. Look at chapter 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, that is we, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God and give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And what is God's response to this kind of wickedness, a wickedness that exchanges His glory and suppresses His truth? What is God's response? Look at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up 
in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason, what did God do? God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And what is God's response to this idolatry and depravity? Look at verse 28, chapter 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Paul says this is who we are. We suppress the truth of God. We deny the clear signs of God's power in creation. We refuse to acknowledge God as God. We do not give thanks to God. We give glory that God alone deserves to created things. We distort our own sexuality and make a mockery of God's purposes. And every single person, he says, is guilty before God. Even judgmental, self-righteous, religious people as chapter 2 begins to declare. And because of our sin, God's wrath, he says, is being kindled against us. Notice chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed And notice how Paul summarizes our depravity in chapter 3 when he quotes from the Old Testament in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. He says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. This is a terrifying description of our condition. And then Paul again summarizes in chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He says, we fail to do the very thing that we were created to do. And friends, as we talked about last week, unless we grasp Chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, and the wrath of God that our sins deserve, what Paul says here at the end of Romans 3 will never be precious to us. If we don't see the depth of the pit that we dug for ourselves and the wrath of God that we deserve, we will never understand the grace and the mercy of 
our God. And so after going on and on for three chapters about God's response to our sinfulness and how we are unrighteous before God, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 21, but now. We are unrighteous, but now. The righteousness of God has been manifested. And we saw last week that God has provided the means of righteousness for us. God has given us a way to be right in His sight. Paul says, verse 24, all who believe are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now remember, justification is the act of God whereby He declares sinners to be right in His sight. In justification, God takes our sin, our unrighteousness, and He places it on Jesus. And He takes Jesus' righteousness and He places that on us so that Jesus gets what we deserve, wrath, and we get what Jesus deserves, righteousness. And salvation. God does this by His grace because Jesus paid the price for our redemption. We were slaves to our sin, but the redemption price has been paid so that we can be free, free from our sin and free to live righteous in the sight of our God. And Paul specifically mentions in verse 24, here's where we ended last week. He specifically mentioned in verse 24 that the ground or the basis of our justification before God is the redemption of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid that price so that we can be justified, so that we can be declared right in God's sight. The payment that frees us is the payment of the life of the Son of God on the cross. And so we saw some incredible truth in verses 21 through 24 last week, but Paul is not done in this passage. He continues exulting in the cross of Jesus Christ and the justification that we have in him. And so as we continue moving into verse 25 now, as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper, and as we prepare ourselves really for this entire week of remembering the death of our Savior, I want to highlight four truths about the cross of Jesus, which is the basis of our justification. Four truths about the cross with what Paul says here starting in verse 25. Here's number one. Number one, the cross of Jesus propitiates God's wrath. The cross of Jesus propitiates God's wrath. And so verse 24 grounds our justification in the redemption of Jesus. And then verse 25 further clarifies what happened at the cross. Paul says, notice it in verse 25, God the Father put Jesus forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And before we talk about this word propitiation, notice who put Jesus forward. Who was it? Paul says it was God the Father who put the Son through the suffering and agony and shame of the cross. All of the suffering that you've seen graphically displayed in various ways, the flogging, the whipping, the crown of thorns, the spear, the 
asphyxiation at the cross. Who put Jesus through all of that? It was His Father who put Him forward to that. And understanding who initiated this salvation, this redemption, is so vital to understand. It was not ultimately the Romans or the Jews, or Pilate, or Herod, or the soldiers who put Jesus to death. Yes, they are responsible. But it was the Father who crushed the Son. Isaiah 53.10 says. Friends, to be clear, this picture of the cross, this picture of the Father putting Christ forward as this sacrifice, this is not a picture of divine child abuse as some are claiming today. No, friends, you need to understand this. The Son willingly embraced the Father's plan and gave up His life in unity with the Father and the Spirit. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. The Father put His Son, our Savior, forward as this propitiation. So what does this word propitiation mean it's not it's not a word that we use in everyday English but it's a word we need to understand well in explaining this word a lot of people throughout history have tried to in some way soften it to make it something like expiation in fact your translation may say expiation here expiation is basically the wiping away or the removing of sin And propitiation certainly includes the idea of expiation, but it it doesn't merely mean the wiping away or the taking away or the stopping of sin. The Greek word specifically here is related to the Old Testament picture of the mercy seat or the place of atonement. So remember, the mercy seat for the Old Covenant was the gold plate or the lid that covered Israel's Ark of the Covenant. It is where the high priest would sprinkle blood each year, one day a year, on the Day of Atonement for the sins of the people. He would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat as an offering, as a sacrifice for all the sins of all the people. The place of atonement there, that mercy seat, was was meant to be a picture of Jesus for us. Jesus is that mercy seat for the new covenant in the sense that He is the place, He's the location where God accomplished the ultimate propitiation, the ultimate sacrifice that would satisfy His wrath. And so that's the the best sense, the best rendering of this word is with this idea of wrath averting or absorbing sacrifice. That's what a propitiation is. It's a sacrifice that adverts or absorbs or satisfies wrath. A propitiation, in this sense, is an offering that satisfies the wrath of God against sin. Listen, it doesn't just wipe away sin as if it never happened, but it actually provides the full satisfaction and payment for it. And so this is a word as believers we should know and delight in. There's no reason to water down or or sort of push aside this word to make it easier to swallow. In fact, we need to just embrace this and begin to use this language because it's so full of wonder and delight for us. Remember the context again of verse 24. 
The context is God's wrath revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. The context is we have stored up wrath. What happens to that wrath that is stored up against us? How can we, who have the wrath of God against us, who have wrath stored up on our account, how can we have a right relationship with God if He's a righteous God and full of wrath toward us? How how can this be? Well, friends, His wrath must be absorbed by another. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for those who believe in Him. Jesus is the wrath-satisfying sacrifice. This is so important to understand that in justifying sinners, God didn't just cancel His wrath. He didn't just take all that wrath that was stored up against us and just say, I'm not worried about that anymore. I'm just going to move on and, and treat them differently. No, He doesn't just decide to stop His wrath. No, propitiation means He pours His righteous anger in full measure on His Son. The wrath that I deserve, the wrath that I had stored up for myself is absorbed, is satisfied, is averted by Jesus on the cross. And so when you think of God's wrath, it's not just the the taking away of His wrath, but it's the, the full pouring out of it. It's depleted, exhausted, it's spent on the all sufficient Savior. That's what propitiation means. And notice again carefully that we are not the ones who offer this sacrifice of propitiation. We don't bring the sacrifice that appeases God's wrath against us. It is God who offers the very sacrifice which satisfies His own wrath. In this sense, He is the initiator of this propitiation, not us. And so God is both the subject and object of propitiation. That is, God is the one who propitiates. He does the propitiation. And God is the one who is propitiated. He receives the propitiation. And so Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, which is what Paul meant by by His blood in verse 25. By His blood means by His death. The sacrificial death of Jesus is the means of the Father's wrath being satisfied against sinners. That is, listen to this good news, friends. Jesus turns God's wrath against us into God's favor for us. Jesus turns God's wrath into God's favor through the means of propitiation. The love of God meets the demands of the justice of God on the cross. Friends, there is no justification. There's no right standing with God apart from this propitiation, apart from this sacrifice of Jesus' death. This gospel is absolutely amazing. More amazing than I can say. More amazing than we can understand. And Paul says, notice in verse 25, it is to be received by faith. This gospel, this good news, is to be received by faith. Faith is the response of, thank you, Jesus. Your sacrifice is enough for me. Faith is the response of, yes, I receive that on my behalf. So the cross of Jesus propitiates the wrath of God. But here's the second truth I want you to see in this passage. The cross of Jesus, secondly, demonstrates that God is righteous. 
The cross of Jesus demonstrates, shows, proclaims, declares that God is righteous. This passage is so full of life-changing truths. Every phrase you just want to stop and delight in and meditate on. And it's such, it is in that such a way that I think what we, ha- what we do, what the tendency is, is that we overlook this truth right here. But I think this is one of the main points of Paul declaring here the righteousness of God that's manifested in the gospel. He wants to say, here is the definitive proof that God is righteous. At the end of verse 25 and into verse 26, notice Paul tells us the main purpose of the cross. Why did the Father put His Son forward as a propitiation? Why did He do that? Notice it. Read it with me. Verse 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Verse 26. It, what's it? The sacrifice of Jesus was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so two times, Paul says the cross of Jesus shows that God is righteous. So here is the innermost meaning of the cross. So there are many effects and reasons of the cross of Christ. But here's the innermost. Here's the foundation of all of the good of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is where God definitively showed His righteousness. Now the question is, why did God need to show His righteousness? Why did God feel compelled to show His righteousness? Well, Paul says, notice it in verse 25, because He had passed over former sins. So I think this means before the cross, before Jesus died, God forgave people and required no immediate payment for sins. Right? Before Jesus died, God forgave people all through the Old Testament and He didn't require the sacrifice yet. He just forgave them. Let me give you an example. Think of King David. Now, I'm not just randomly picking King David out of all the saints in the Old Testament. I think Paul actually has David in mind as he wrote this. Because remember back in chapter 3, verse 4, Paul has just quoted from David's prayer of confession in Psalm 51. Remember what Psalm 51 is about? David is confessing his sin to God. So Paul is thinking about David and him confessing his sins. Remember what David did? David lusted after Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her. He got her pregnant. He murdered her husband. And he tried to cover the entire thing up as if it never happened. And yet, God sends his prophet Nathan to David. And God says through Nathan to David, your sins are forgiven. What? You just forgave him of all that? You required no sacrifice from him? Just forgave him. Just like he did all of that and you just said, you're forgiven. How can God do that? I think that's the question Paul has in mind. How can a holy God not require sinners to pay for their sins? How can a holy God not require sinners to pay for the forgiveness of their sins? This is a huge problem. This is a massive problem for God's reputation, for the fact that is, is, he, is He really a righteous God? 
Is He really holy? How can He be righteous and not require every sin to be punished and paid for? How can He just forgive sins and still be holy? And Paul says, the cross of Jesus is the answer to that huge problem. The cross of Jesus is the definitive demonstration that God is indeed righteous. Because at the cross, Jesus made satisfaction for all the sins of all those who believe in Him throughout all of history. Jesus made the satisfaction for all the sins of all those who have ever been or will ever be forgiven by God. The cross shows that God is totally just and righteous. He crushed His Son to prove to us that He is a just God, that He is a righteous God. This is so important to understand. How could God forgive people in the Old Testament before Jesus offered this once-for-all propitiatory sacrifice? How could God do that? Well, let me give an illustration. This is a totally inadequate illustration, but maybe it helps in a small way. Think of it kind of like buying an item on credit. Like, think of it like this. One of my car needs gas. I stop at a gas station. And instead of taking the time to walk in the store, stand in the line, take out cash, get change back, instead I just insert a credit card into a machine and then I fill up my tank with gas. I don't pay the gas station a dime. I don't pay them nothing. And yet I drive away with a full tank of gas. In essence, what the gas station is doing is passing over what I owe them. Right? How? How can that happen? How can I drive away without paying for the gas? Well, I get the gas on credit. My credit card company pays the gas station, and then within a month or so, they send me a bill for the gas. And that is when I have to pay for what I borrowed on credit. It somewhat illustrates how God saved Old Testament believers on credit. Just like I enter my credit card in a machine, they offered sacrifices and prayers and offerings to God in faith. Just like I get the gas, they received genuine forgiveness of their sins. Just like I receive the bill and pay for it, Jesus received their bill and paid for their sin debt in full on the cross. Jesus died publicly to demonstrate that God is righteous in saving Old Testament believers on credit. You see, friends, every sin must be paid for. The bill comes due on every sin. God's holiness, God's justice demand it. There's no writing off of debt when it comes to sin. There are only two options. You can either trust in Jesus and have your sins paid in full by His blood, or you can bear the full weight of the wrath of God for your sins in eternal hell. Every sin will be paid for. God's justice, God's righteousness demands us. He will be shown as righteous either by Jesus on the cross or by you in hell. God must punish sin. The bill must be paid for. And so He punished His Son so that He could show His righteousness in forgiving sinners. And so the cross of Jesus is the demonstration of that righteousness. Really, it's the demonstration of the glory of God 
and God's passion to display His name in all of creation. The Father put His Son to death to show that He is a righteous God who is worthy to be worshipped and trusted. John Stott puts it in his commentary on this passage. He says this, the cross of Christ is the righteous basis on which the righteous God can righteous the unrighteous without compromising His righteousness. The cross shows us that God is righteous. In fact, verse 26 actually says that God would not be righteous if He didn't put Jesus forward as a propitiation. God is passionate about displaying His righteousness. Well, notice the third truth about the cross of Christ here. Number three, the cross of Christ demolishes human boasting. The cross of Jesus demolishes all human boasting. So verses 27 through 31 contain a few implications that Paul gives of the cross of Jesus and the manifestation of the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. And the first implication, notice, is that boasting becomes unthinkable. (laughs) Boasting, he says, is excluded in light of the propitiation Jesus has purchased by His blood. I think Paul's point is to say this. If justification were by keeping God's rules, by keeping God's law, notice he uses the phrase, the law of works. If justification were that way, you would have every reason to boast. Right? If you could do enough things to justify yourself, you have every right to boast and brag about what you did. If the Jews were justified by circumcision and by law-keeping, then they should boast over the Gentiles. But if justification is by faith alone, there is absolutely nothing to boast about. Imagine, if you will, that someone comes up to you and gives you a check for $1,000, and you gladly receive it. You happily receive this money from that person. Now, listen, would anyone in that moment, would anyone in all of creation in that moment celebrate how well you received that gift? Like, would anybody marvel that you did such a hard thing and commendable thing to receive that gift? No, right? $1,000, receiving $1,000 takes absolutely no skill, no effort on your part. Literally, Anyone in the whole world could do that, even an infant. It's certainly nothing worth boasting about. And Paul says, in the same way, faith is the receiving of Jesus as a treasure. It's not a work, and it requires no special skill or insight that arises inside of us. And so, if you receive the gift of Jesus and His sacrifice, you have nothing to boast about. You have nothing to boast about. Verse 28, notice Paul says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Thus, boasting is demolished by the gospel. What would we boast about if we did boast? Did we buy this salvation? No. Did we receive this salvation by being born into the right family? No. Absolutely not. So why then would we boast about anything except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.14, Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, one of the signs that you understand and embrace the gospel is that you are a humbly grateful person. You realize that your right standing with God is not owing to you, but is owing solely to His initiative and to Jesus' sacrifice and nothing you have done. What do we have that we did not receive? Paul would ask the Corinthians. What do we have in salvation that we did not receive? Answer, nothing. It's all a gift besides Who would look into the bloody face of Jesus hanging on the cross and start talking about how righteous they are and how many good deeds they have done? May it never be, Paul would say. Boasting is excluded. Fourth and finally, notice the cross of Jesus shows there is only one way of salvation. The cross of Jesus shows that there is only one way of salvation. So here's another implication that Paul gives of the manifestation of God's righteousness in the gospel. Look at verses 29 and 30. Paul asks, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and uncircumcised through faith? So here's the question Paul's asking. Is God the God of the Jews only? He says, no. He's not just the God of the Jews because He also justifies Gentiles by faith. So, He's the God of the Gentiles also. God will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. This was the particular issue being debated in Rome, but we could also say today things like God will justify male and female by faith. God will justify black and white by faith alone. God will justify Republicans and Democrats by faith alone. Whatever our world uses to divide us, the gospel unites us. Because the gospel is true for every person without distinction. There is not one way of salvation for one religion and another way of salvation for another religion. There's not one way of salvation for this part of the world and another way for that part of the world. There's not one way of salvation for this denomination and this way of salvation for this other denomination. There is only one way that God saves. Through faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, period. This is the only way of salvation. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one. What does He mean by no one? No one comes to the Father but through me. In Acts chapter 4, the apostles declared to everyone who would listen, there is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. Listen, friends. The Father did not put His Son forward as a propitiation to be one way among many. I guarantee you that. Jesus didn't pay the price so that some people could be justified by faith and some people could be justified by works. The cross of Jesus unites us in this. There is no other way for anyone at any time than through the propitiation of Jesus' blood. And Paul says in verse 31 that this one way doesn't overthrow God's law, but rather upholds God's law. In other words, this is what God's law has always been pointing toward. This is what God's law has always been preparing us for. There is only one means of salvation. It is in the cross of the Lord Jesus 
Christ. And so what a passage, what a text, what a Savior that we have, what a righteousness that God has manifested in the gospel. And so as we move toward the Lord's table, let let me call both Christians and non-Christians in this room to three responses. Every person in this room, here's how to respond to what you've just heard. Number one, acknowledge your unrighteousness right now. Acknowledge your unrighteousness. You have failed to do the very thing you were created to do. Feel this realization. You have rebelled against God, and because of that, you deserve to suffer under God's wrath for all eternity. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. That's what everyone deserves. But secondly, when you think about your unrighteousness, relinquish all reliance on yourself. So don't look at your unrighteousness and say, oh, I got to do better. Don't look at your unrighteousness and say, I got to turn a new leaf. Look away from yourself. Look away from what you've done or what you could do to appease God's wrath and count it like the Apostle Paul as rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. Turn away from your own attempts at earning God's favor. And third and finally, place your confidence totally in Jesus. Acknowledge your unrighteousness. Relinquish your reliance on yourself and put your confidence only in Jesus who is God's provision for you. Listen, it is a great arrogance. It is the height of pride and arrogance to not avail yourself of God's provision. Can you imagine standing before God in all of His glory, in all of His righteousness, in all of His holiness, and saying, man, it sure was nice of you to send your son to die for my sins, but I've been good enough to stand before you in my own righteousness. What do you think God would do with that kind of arrogance? Friends, fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to Jesus. Treasure Jesus alone. And friends, this is what the Lord's Supper is designed to do for us. The Lord's Supper helps us to acknowledge that we are unrighteous and we relinquish all reliance on ourselves, right? You either in this moment hold the bread and the cup in your hands or you hold your own righteousness. You either hold the bread and the cup and say, I am completely unrighteous. I am trusting in Jesus Christ alone. Or you come to God and you say, look look how good I've been, God. Look what I could do for you. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. The Lord's Supper is that visual demonstration that we are putting all of our confidence in Jesus Christ. And so listen, if you're not trusting in Jesus today, If He's not the Lord of your life, you should not partake of these elements. The Apostle Paul would say, if you eat the bread and the cup, you will eat and drink judgment upon yourself. If you're not a believer, if you're not following Him, simply pass the plate to the next person this morning and use this time to cry out to God to save you and to change your heart. He can do that right now. But if you are trusting in Jesus today, if you're willing to follow Him in the context of the local church, then we invite you to embrace the death of Jesus, to proclaim your faith through partaking together. Jesus gave the invitation. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. 
Do this to remember my suffering. Do this to remember my sacrifice. Do this to remember what I shed for you. And so here in just a moment, as we pass out the elements, Mike and the team are going to come. Go ahead and come on up. The, the deacons who are going to serve the elements, go ahead and come on up. We're going to take this time as the elements are being passed to prepare our hearts, to examine ourselves, to prepare to receive the broken body and poured out blood of our Lord and Savior. Just a quick